Chapter 9, Parts 8-12 to of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Ninth, The Spirit of the New World. 8. The onset of New York was extraordinarily stimulating to me. I write onset. It is indeed that. New York rides up out of the waters, a cliff of man's making. Its great buildings at a distance seem like long Chinese banners held up against the sky. From Sandy Hook to the great landing stages, and to the swirling, hooting traffic of the Hudson River, there fails nothing in that magnificent crescendo of approach. And New York keeps the promise of its first appearance. There is no such fullness of life elsewhere in all the world. The common man in the streets is a bigger common man than any old world city can show, physically bigger. There is hope in his eyes and a braced defiance. New York may be harsh and blusterous and violent, but there is a breeze from the sea and a breeze of fraternity in the streets, and the Americans of all peoples in the world are a nation of still unbroken men. I went to America curious, balancing between hope and skepticism. The European world is full of the criticism of America, and for the matter of that, America too is full of it. Hostility and depreciation prevail. Overmuch, for in spite of rawness and vehemence, and a scum of blatant, oh, quite asinine folly, the United States of America remains the greatest country in the world, and the living hope of mankind. It is the supreme break with the old tradition. It is the freshest and most valiant beginning that has ever been made in human life. Here was the antithesis of India. Here were no peasants whatever, no traditional culture, no castes, no established differences, except for the one schism of color. This amazing place had never had a famine, never a plague. Here were no temples and no priesthoods dominating the lives of the people. Old Trinity Church, embedded amidst towering skyscrapers, was a symbol for as much as they had of all that. And here, too, there was no crown, no affectations of an ancient loyalty, no visible army, no traditions of hostility. For the old defiance of Britain is a thing now ridiculous and dead. And every one I met had an air as if he knew that tomorrow must be different from today, and different and novel and remarkable by virtue of himself and such as himself. I went about New York with the incredulous satisfaction of a man who has long doubted to find that, after all, America was coming true. The very clatter pleased me, the crowds, the camp-like slovenliness, a disorder so entirely different from the established and accepted untidiness of China or India. Here was something the old world had never shown me, a new enterprise, a fresh vigor. In the old world there is change, a mighty wave now of change, 
but it drives men before it as if it were a power outside them and not in them. They do not know, they do not believe. But here the change is in the very blood and spirit of mankind. They breathe it in even before the launch has brought their feet to Ellis Island soil. In six months they are Americanized. Does it matter that a thing so gigantic should be a little coarse and blundering in detail? If the stumbling giant of the new time breaks a gracious relic or so in his eager clutch, and treads a little on the flowers. 9. And in this setting of energy and activity, towering city life and bracing sea-breezes, I met Gidding again, whom I had last seen departing into Egypt, to look more particularly at the prehistoric remains and the temples of the first and second dynasty at Abydus. It was at a dinner-party, one of those large gatherings that welcome interesting visitors. It wasn't, of course, I who was the centre of interest, but a distinguished French portrait-painter. I was there as just any guest. I hadn't even perceived Gidding until he came round to me in that precious gap of masculine intercourse that ensues upon the departure of the ladies. That gap is one of the rare opportunities for conversation men get in America. "'I don't know whether you will remember me,' he said, "'but perhaps you remember Crete, in the sunrise.' "'And no end of talk afterwards,' I said, grasping his hand. "'No end, for we didn't half finish. "'Did you have a good time in Egypt?' "'I'm not going to talk to you about Egypt.' said Gidding. I'm through with ruins. I'm going to ask you... You know what I'm going to ask you. What I think of America. It's the same inevitable question. I think everything of it. It's the stepping-off place. I've come here at last because it matters most. That's what we all want to believe, said Gidding. That's what we want you to tell us. He reflected. It's immense, isn't it? Perfectly immense. But I am afraid at times we're too disposed to forget just what it's all about. We've got to be reminded. That, you know, is why we keep on asking. He went on to question me where I had been, what I had done, what I made of things. He'd never, he said, forgotten our two days' gossip in the Levant and all the wide questions about the world and ourselves that we had broached then and left so open. I soon found myself talking very freely to him. I am not a ready or abundant talker, but Gidding has the knack of precipitating my ideas. He is America to my Europe, and at his touch all that has been hanging in concentrated solution in my mind comes crystallizing out. He has, to a peculiar degree, that directness and simplicity which is the distinctive American quality. I tried to explain to his solemnly nodding head and entirely intelligent eyes just exactly what I was making of things, of the world, of humanity, of myself. It was an odd theme for two men to attempt after dinner, servants hovering about them, their two faces a little flushed by wine and good eating. 
their keen interest masked from the others around them by a gossiping affectation their hands going out as they talked for matches or cigarette and before we had gone further than to fling out a few intimations to each other our colloquy was interrupted by our host standing up and by the general stir that preluded our return to feminine society we've got more to say than this said Gidding. we've got to talk he brought out a little engagement book that at once drew out mine in response and a couple of days after we spent a morning and afternoon together and got down to some very intimate conversation we motored out to lunch at a place called nyack above the palisades we crossed on a ferry to reach it and we visited the house of washington irving near yonkers on our way i've still a vivid picture in my mind of the little lawn at irvington that looks out upon the rushing steel of hudson river where Gidding opened his heart to me i can see him now as he leant a little forward over the table with his wrists resting upon it his long clean-shaven face very solemn and earnest and grey against the hard american sunlight in the greenery about us well he told me in that deliberate american voice of his and with the deliberate american solemnity of his desire to do some decent thing with life he was very anxious to set himself completely before me i remember on that occasion there was a peculiar mental kinship between us that even the profound differences of our english and american trainings could not mask and now he told me almost everything material about his life for the first time i learned how enormously rich he was not only by reason of his father's acquisitions but also because of his own almost instinctive aptitude for business i've got he said to begin with what almost all men spent their whole lives in trying to get and it amounts to nothing it leaves me with life like a blank sheet of paper and nothing in particular to write on it you know he said it's exasperating i'm already halfway to threescore and ten and i'm still wandering about wondering what to do with this piece of life god has given me he had lived as people say he had been in scrapes and scandals tasted to the full the bitter intensities of the personal life he had come by a different route to the same conclusions as myself was as anxious as i to escape from memories and associations and feuds and that excessive vividness of individual feeling which blinds us to the common humanity the common interest the gentler larger reality which lies behind each tawdrily emphatic self it's a sort of inverted homeopathy i want he said the big thing to cure the little thing but i will say no more of that side of our friendship because the ideas of it are spread all through this book from the first page to the last what concerns me now is not our sympathy and agreement but that other aspect of our relations in which getting becomes impulse and urgency seeing we have these ideas said he and mind you there must be others who have them or are getting to them for nobody thinks all alone in this world 
seeing we have these ideas, what are we going to do? 10. That meeting was followed by another before I left New York, and presently Gidding joined me at Denver, where I was trying to measure the true significance of a labor paper called The Appeal to Reason, that in spite of a rigid boycott by the ordinary agencies for news distribution, went out in the Middle West to nearly half a million subscribers, and was filled with such a fierceness of insurrection against labor conditions, such a hatred, blind and impassioned, as I had never known before. Gidding remained with me there, and came back with me to Chicago, where I wanted to see something of the Americanization of the immigrant, and my survey of America, the social and economic problem of America, resolved itself more and more into a conference with him. There is no more fruitless thing in the world than to speculate how life would have gone if this thing or that had not happened. Yet I cannot help but wonder how far I might have travelled along the lines of my present work if I had gone to America and not met Gidding, or if I had met him without visiting America. The man and his country are inextricably interwoven in my mind. Yet I do think that his simplicity and directness, his force of initiative that turned me from a mere inquirer into an active writer and organizer, are qualities less his in particular than America's in general. There is in America a splendid crudity, a directness that cleared my spirit as a bracing wind will sweep the clouds from mountain scenery. Compared with our older continents, America is mankind stripped for achievement. So many things are not there at all, need not be considered. No institutional aristocracy, no kaisers, czars, nor king-emperors to maintain a litigious sequel to the empire of Rome. It has no uneducated, immovable peasantry rooted to the soil. Indeed, it has no rooting to the soil at all. It is, from the forty-ninth parallel to the tip of Cape Horn, one triumphant embodiment of freedom and deliberate agreement. For I mean all America, Spanish-speaking as well as English-speaking. They have this detachment from tradition in common. See how the United States, for example, stands flatly on that bare piece of eighteenth-century intellectualism, the Constitution, and is by virtue of that a structure either willful and intellectual or absurd. That sense of incurable servitude to fate and past traditions, that encumbrance with ruins, pledges, laws, and ancient institutions, that perpetual complication of considerations, and those haunting memories of preceding human failures which dwarf the courage of destiny in Europe and Asia, vanish from the mind within a week of one's arrival in the new world. Naturally one begins to do things. One is inspired to do things. One feels that one has escaped. One feels that the time is now. All America, north and south alike, is one tremendous escape from ancient obsessions into activity and making. And by the time I had reached America, I had already come to see that just as the issues of party politics at home, 
and international politics abroad, are mere superficialities above the greater struggle of an energetic minority to organize and exploit the labor of the masses of mankind. So that struggle also is only a huge incident in the still more than half-unconscious impulse to replace the ancient way of human living by a more highly organized world-wide social order, by a world civilization embodying itself in a world state. And I saw now how that impulse could neither cease nor could it on the other hand realize itself, until it became conscious and deliberate and merciful, free from haste and tyranny, persuasive and sustained by a nearly universal sympathy and understanding. For until that arrives, the creative forces must inevitably spend themselves very largely in blind alleys, futile rushes, and destructive conflicts. Upon that our two minds were agreed. We have, said Gidding, to understand and make understanding. That is the real work for us to do, Stratton. That is our job. The world, as you say, has been floundering about, half-making civilization and never achieving it. Now we, I don't mean just you and me, Stratton, particularly, but every intelligent man among us have got to set to and make it thorough. There is no other sane policy for a man outside his private passions but that. So let's get at it. I find it now impossible to trace the phases by which I reached these broad ideas, upon which I rest all my work. But certainly they were present very early in my discussions with Gidding. We two men had been thinking independently, but very similarly, and it is hard to say just what completing touches either of us gave to the other's propositions. We found ourselves, rather than arrived at, the conception of ourselves as the citizens neither of the United States nor of England, but of a state that had still to come into being, a world-state, a great unity behind and embracing the ostensible political fabrics of today, a unity to be reached by weakening antagonisms, by developing understandings and toleration, by fostering the sense of brotherhood across the ancient bounds. We believed, and we believe, that such a creative conception of a human commonweal can be fostered in exactly the same way that the idea of German unity was fostered, behind the dukedoms, the free cities and kingdoms of Germany, a conception so creative that it can dissolve traditional hatreds, incorporate narrower loyalties, and replace a thousand suspicions and hostilities by a common passion for collective achievement. So creative that at last the national boundaries of today may become obstacles as trivial to the amplifying goodwill of men as the imaginary line that severs Normandy from Brittany or Berwick from Northumberland. And it is not only a great piece about the earth that this idea of a world state means for us, but social justice also. We are both convinced altogether that there survives no reason for lives of toil, for hardship, poverty, famine, infectious disease, for the continuing cruelties of wild beasts and the greater multitude of crimes, 
but mismanagement and waste, and that mismanagement and waste spring from no other source than ignorance, and from stupid divisions and jealousies, base patriotisms, fanaticisms, prejudices and suspicions, that are all no more than ignorance, a little mingled with viciousness. We have looked closely into the servitude of modern labor. We have seen its injustice fester towards syndicalism and revolutionary socialism. And we know these things for the mere aimless, ignorant resentments they are. Punishments, not remedies. We have looked into the portentous threat of modern war, and it is ignorant vanity and ignorant suspicion, the bargaining aggression of the British prosperous and the swaggering vulgarity of the German junker, that make and sustain that monstrous European devotion to arms. And we are convinced there is nothing in these evils and conflicts that light may not dispel. We believe that these things can be dispelled, that the great universals, science, which has limitations neither of race nor class, art, which speaks to its own in every rank and nation, philosophy and literature, which broaden sympathy and banish prejudice, can flood and submerge, and will yet flow over and submerge every one of these separations between man and man. I will not say that this great state, this world republic of civilized men, is our dream, because it is not a dream. It is a manifestly reasonable possibility. It is our intention. It is what we are deliberately making, and what, in a little while, very many men and women will be making. We are secessionists from all contemporary nationalities and loyalties. We have set ourselves with all the capacity and energy at our disposal to create a world-wide common fund of ideas and knowledge, and to evoke a world-wide sense of human solidarity, in which the existing limitations of political structure must inevitably melt away. It was Gidding and his Americanism, his inborn predisposition to innovation, and the large freedom of his wealth, that turned these ideas into immediate concrete undertakings. I see more and more that it is here that we of the old European stocks, who still grow upon the old wood, differ most from those vigorous grafts of our race in America and Africa and Australia on the one hand, and from the renascent peoples of the East on the other, that we have lost the courage of youth, and have not yet gained the courage of desperate humiliations in taking hold of things. To getting, it was neither preposterous nor insufferably magnificent that we should set about a propaganda of all science, all knowledge, all philosophical and political ideas round about the habitable globe. His mind began producing concrete projects, as a firework being lit produces sparks, and soon he was figuring out the most colossal of printing and publishing projects as a man might work out the particulars for an alteration to his bathroom. It was so entirely natural to him, it was so entirely novel to me, 
to go on from the proposition that understanding was the primary need of humanity, to the systematic organization of free publishing, exhaustive discussion, intellectual stimulation. He set about it as a company of pharmacists might organize the distribution of some beneficial cure. "'Say, Stratton,' he said, after a conversation that had seemed to me half fantasy, "'let's do it!' There are moments still when it seems to me that this life of mine has become the most preposterous of adventures. We two absurd human beings are spending our days and nights in a sustained and growing attempt to do what? To destroy certain obsessions, and to give the universal human mind a form and a desire for expression. We have put into the shape of one comprehensive project that force of released wealth that has already dotted America with universities, libraries, institutions for research and inquiry. Already there are others at work with us, and presently there will be a great number. We have started an avalanche above the old politics, and it gathers mass and pace. And there never was an impulse towards endeavor in a human heart that wasn't preposterous. Man is a preposterous animal. Thereby he ceases to be a creature and becomes a creator. He turns upon the powers that made him and subdues them to his service. By his sheer impudence he establishes his claim to possess a soul. But I need not write at all fully of my work here. This book is not about that, but about my coming to that. Long before this manuscript reaches your hands, if ultimately I decide that it shall reach your hands, you will be taking your share, I hope, in this open conspiracy against potentates and prejudices and all the separating powers of darkness. 11. I would, if I could, omit one thing that I must tell you here, because it goes so close to the very core of all this book has to convey. I wish I could leave it out altogether. I wish I could simplify my story by smoothing out this wrinkle at least and obliterating a thing that was at once very real and very ugly. You see, I had at last struggled up to a sustaining idea, to a conception of work and duty to which I could surely give my life. I had escaped from my pit so far. And it was natural that now, with something to give, I should turn, not merely for consolation and service, but for help and fellowship to that dear human being across the seas who had offered them to me so straightly and sweetly. All that is brave and good, and as you would have me, is it not? Only, dear son, that is not all the truth. There was still in my mind, for long it remained in my mind, a bitterness against Mary. I had left her, I had lost her, we had parted. But from Germany to America, and all through America, 
at home again to my marriage, and with me after my marriage. It rankled that she could still go on living a life independent of mine. I had not yet lost my desire to possess her, to pervade and dominate her existence. My resentment that though she loved me, she had first not married me, and afterwards not consented to come away with me, was smouldering under the closed hatches of my mind. And so, while the better part of me was laying hold of this work, because it gave me the hope of a complete distraction and escape from my narrow and jealous self, that lower being of the pit was also rejoicing in the great enterprises before me, and in the marriage upon which I had now determined, because it was a last trampling upon my devotion to Mary, because it defied and denied some lurking claims to empire I could suspect in her. I want to tell you that particularly, because so I am made, so you are made, so most of us are made. There is scarcely a high purpose in all the world that has no dwarfish footman at its stirrup, no base intention over which there does not ride at least the phantom of an angel. Constantly in those days, it seems to me now, I was haunted by my own imagination of Mary amiably reconciled to Justin, bearing him children, forgetful of or repudiating all the sweetness, all the wonder and beauty we had shared. It was an unjust and ungenerous conception. I knew it for a caricature even as I entertained it, and yet it tormented me. It stung me like a spur. It kept me at work, and if I strayed into indolence, brought me back to work with a mind galled and bleeding. 12. And I suppose it is mixed up with all this, that I could not make love easily and naturally to Rachel. I could not write love letters to her. There is a burlesque quality in these scruples, I know, seeing that I was now resolved to marry her, but that is the quality, that is the mixed texture of life. We overcome the greater things, and are conscience-stricken by the details. I wouldn't, even at the price of losing her, and I was now passionately anxious not to lose her, use a single phrase of endearment that did not come out of me almost in spite of myself. At any rate, I would not cheat her. And my offer of marriage, when at last I sent it to her from Chicago, was, as I remember it, almost businesslike. I atoned soon enough for that arid letter, in ten thousand sweet words that came of themselves to my lips. And she paid me at any rate in my own coin, when she sent me her answer by cable, the one word, yes. And indeed, I was already in love with her long before I wrote. It was only a dread of giving her a single undeserved cheapness that had held me back so long. It was that, and the perplexity, that Mary still gripped my feelings. My old love for her was there in my heart, in spite of my new passion for Rachel. It was blackened, perhaps, 
and ruined and changed, but it was there. It was as if a new crater burnt now in the ampler circumference of an old volcano, which showed all the more desolate and sorrowful and obsolete for the warm light of the new flames. How impatiently I came home! Thoughts of England I had not dared to think for three long years might now do what they would in me. I dreamt of the Surrey Hills and the great woods of Burnmore Park, of the changing skies and stirring soft winds of our grey green motherland. There was fog in the Irish Sea, and we lost the better part of a day hooting our way towards Liverpool, while I fretted about the ship with all my luggage packed, staring at the grey waters that weltered under the mist. It was the longest day in my life. My heart was full of desire. My eyes ached for the little fields and golden October skies of England, England that was waiting to welcome me back from my exile with such open arms. I was coming home. Home. I hurried through London into Surrey, and in my father's study, Warned by a telegram, I found a bright-eyed, resolute young woman awaiting me, with the quality about her of one who embarks upon a long premeditated adventure. And I found, too, a family, her sisters and her brother all gladly ready for me. My father, too, was a happy man. And on the 8th of November in 1906, Rachel and I were married in the little church at Cher. We stayed for a week or so in Hampshire near Ringwood. The season was late that year, and the trees still very beautiful. And then we went to Portofino on the Ligurian coast. There, presently, Gidding joined us, and we began to work out the schemes we had made in America, the schemes that now fill my life. End of chapter 9